What I want to do today in this teaching is make uh, a case uh, practically for the importance of the multi-ethnic church. If you were with us yesterday, I tried to make the case theologically out of Ephesians 2 and 3 and other scriptures. It has always been God's dream. He said to Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all the nations. And that word nations, when Jesus said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, is the word ta-ethnot. So when you read the word nations in the Bible, don't think so much of a landmass with a physical boundary. Think of a people group. This is why, for example, in Israel or in Palestine, you can have a number of nations because you had the different people groups. And so what Jesus wants, he wants disciples made of every people group, of every ethnicity on the earth. Now, I need to be very, very careful with what I'm about to say because I know I can be misunderstood. And by the way, one reason we don't have enough conversations about race is because we're so afraid we might get misunderstood. But here's the statement I want to make. I've spoken a lot about racial issues in my church over the years. But that's never been the true agenda. The agenda is the mission to make disciples. Yeah. And racial reconciliation and, and multi-ethnicity is essential to the mission. Uh, Jesus, uh, remember, before he died, prayed, may they be one so that the world will know you sent me. That our unity in Christ does something about convincing people of the identity of Christ. Or in other words, people are one to Christ when they see a people that are one in Christ. And so this conversation is critical. I do not believe we can continue the practice of living in mono-ethnic churches and produce the kind of witness Jesus wants to the world. If we're going to make disciples of every ethnic group, the world needs to see the witness of the ethnic groups, unity in Christ. And so because of my commitment to the mission, I am a big, big believer in the future of the colorful church. Now, when I did this teaching in my church, some of the feedback I got from people was, I, I understood this in a new way in two different arenas. One, playing team sports. That I, I lived most of my life in the bubble of one ethnicity until I got involved in athletics. And in athletics, I learned the lesson that when you have a mission, that is to win games, then the differences of the teammates were transcended by the common mission, and we found unity. Other people said it was the military. That, that being in the military was my first real experience of doing life with people of other ethnicities. And again, the common mission made it work. Now, I want to start by talking about my favorite church in the Bible, and it's the church in Antioch. And this unique church did something that had never been done before. It says in Acts 11, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered through, during the persecution or after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and large numbers of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. 
Now, this is the first recorded instance of Christians building the kind of bridge that it was going to take to fulfill Jesus' global mission. Antioch, like most metropolitan cities in ancient times, was filled with ethnic division, resulting in that city being divided into 18 separate ethnic quarters. And everybody knew where your kind or your people or your ethnicity lived, and they kept it that way. But this radical group of unintentional missionaries were somehow able to separate the core gospel from its Jewish wrappings. <laughs> and they realized that if people became disciples of the same Jesus, they should be sitting around the same table. Now, you're not going to believe this, but when these Jewish Christians began preaching to and receiving and living in fellowship with Gentile believers, it blew up on the internet. <laughs> Everybody was talking about it. <coughs> so it says, when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to say, true to the Lord, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and strong faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Now, it's important. This is the second time now, in just a few verses, Luke has made a point. The ethnic unity of this church was resulting in a huge evangelistic harvest. And Barnabas quickly realized God was all over this. So here's the irony. As Dr. King has pointed out, in America, still to this day, the single most segregated hour in America is the Sunday morning hour of worship. In Antioch, the most integrated hour of the week was the hour of worship. This was the witness of that church. And it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And this, is, I think, is very significant. And for a long time, I didn't notice this. But it's significant. Paul got his real training in ministry in Antioch. You remember the story of Paul's meeting with Jesus in Acts 9. And Jesus has sent him aside to be an apostle of the Gentiles. Why didn't Jesus send him to Jerusalem for training? Why didn't he go where all the apostles lived, where he could get the most robust theological training he could possibly get? Why didn't God send him to Antioch for training? And the answer is because Jerusalem was a mono-ethnic church, and God didn't want that church planted in all the world. God wanted the multi-ethnic church. And nowhere in Scripture does Paul or any of us go and plant mono-ethnic churches. He wanted the man who would take the gospel to the world to experience the kind of church that God wanted planted in all the world. We'll read about this church later in Acts 13. Among the prophets and teachers of the church in Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius, from Cyrene, that's Africa. 
Many, the child of commanding the king Herod Antipas, saw one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. And so after more fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And so Luke intentionally highlights the ethnic diversity of the church leadership in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit chooses this church and this leadership to launch the movement that would take the gospel to all the ethnic groups of the world. And here's why. Christianity has never belonged to one ethnic group more than the other. Ever. Think about this. And this, for me, one of the evidences of the legitimacy of the Christian faith over other world religions. Where did Buddhism begin? The Far East. Where's the center of Buddhism today? The Far East. Where did Hinduism begin? In India. Where's the center of Hinduism today? India. Where did Islam begin? The Middle East. What is the center and home of Islam today? The Middle East. Where's the center of Christianity? Now it began in Jerusalem. But it quickly spread to Africa. And for the first several hundred years of the church, the, the center of the faith and the greatest theologians were in Africa. And then it moved to Europe, and for many years, hundreds of years, the center of the faith was in Europe. Some would argue then it moved to America. It has now moved back to Africa. You know that, don't you? There are more Africans who are believers of Jesus than any continent in the world, and some are saying that it could, within the next few decades, move to Asia. China could well have more Christians than any nation in the world in our lifetime. Here's the point. Christianity doesn't have a home team. It is home for everybody. In fact, one of the misnomers that people often say is, well, Christianity is a white man's religion. You only know 70% of the Christians in the world are white. Let me say that again. Only 70% of the Christians in the world are white. And in our lifetime, most of the Christians in the North America are not going to be white. We need to do business with this. That the future of the church is a colorful future. And we need to embrace it and welcome it and be glad about it. But as I said yesterday, the multi-ethnic church will always be better. It will never be easy. Now, I'm going to share with you some things I have learned about trying to be intentional about growing a multi-ethnic church. Now, I'm going to say up front, I am a novice and I am an amateur. Okay? I am not an expert. There are people who are, and they've written books. You should can't listen to them more than you listen to me. What I can say is I'm in the trenches. I'm actually out there in a local church trying to do it. And I've learned some things. So I'm going to give you three big ideas about becoming a more colorful church. And here's number one. You need to listen to instead of just hearing about. 
Now, we all have our prejudices. I am convinced that prejudice is a part of the fallen sin nature. That if we all looked exactly alike, we would still find a way to other other people. In Rwanda, black people murdered black people because they were of a different tribe. When Yugoslavia broke up, light-skinned people butchered light-skinned people because they were of a different religion. In my own community, I've had conversations with African immigrants who feel they are uh, the victims of bigotry by African Americans. I have people who are from Mexico in my church who feel they are looked down on by members of my church who are from Latin America and South America. The, the sin nature is so great, we can find ways to make anybody the other. So the best way to keep stereotypes alive is to listen to propaganda instead of actually talk to people. Because when we talk to people, issues become faces and stories. And so, we all need to do a lot less scrolling and a lot more listening. James says in 119, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think if he wrote that verse today, he would write, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to tweet, and slow to repost without <laughs> We all need real relationships with people that can help us see issues from other cultural perspectives. One of the things I did uh, at our church as I started this journey, that journey, I intentionally set up living room conversations with, with members of other ethnicities in my church. And I just started out and just said, help me understand what I know I don't understand. And it starts there. I know that I don't know what it's like to be you. And I need to know more. And especially for white people, we need to learn to listen to our brothers and sisters of color without getting defensive, without delegitimizing somebody else's pain, without chastising someone for expressing real emotion. Without diminishing somebody else's experience because you've never had it. There was a meeting of black and white church leaders in my city. And one of the lines I think I'll remember the most was a black elder who said to white church leaders, if you have black friends that never talk to you about race, then you don't have black friends. <laughs> so you need to feel honored if someone trusts you enough to say things and share things with you that might be hard to hear. Relationships trump feelings. I wish I could spend more time here, but we need to move on. We need to cultivate the virtue and the spiritual gift of listening. 
instead of just hearing about. Okay. The second big idea, and I'll spend a little more time here. We're going to have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm going to show you three areas where you're going to have to get comfortable getting being uncomfortable if you want a more colorful church. Number one is with interracial marriage. Now, um, years ago I did something. Remember what we used to call gospel meetings? <laughs> I did a gospel meeting in West Texas. It was the night before the last lesson I was getting packed to leave. I go back to my hotel room and there's three big cowboys waiting for me. And they say, we want to talk to you for a second. I had spoke some that week about racism. They met me in my hotel room. In fact, they sat between me and the door. That was my first mistake. <laughs> and they said, you talk some about race, and then we want to talk to you about that. Well, this was a community that depended a lot on, on uh, Hispanic labor to work the cotton fields. And the church had been very intentional about reaching out to the Hispanic community in this West Texas town, which meant the youth group was becoming multi-ethnic. And you can already know where I'm going. So one of these cowboys basically said, we got some of these brown boys dating our white girls. I don't like it. What do you say about it? Caught me off. Um, I said, well, I said, um, he said, what should I say to my daughter? I said, well, I would say to your daughter, she should obey her father. Uh, and if you forbid her to be around boys of color, um, I will tell you that if you keep making rules the Bible can't support, you're going to drive her away from the faith. I said, I would much rather my daughter date and eventually marry a man of color that was deeply in love with Jesus than a man of her own ethnicity who did not follow Jesus. And that man looked me in the eye and said, well, we'll just have to disagree about that. Now let that sink in. Ethnicity is a higher value to me than faith. Now some of them say, well, doesn't the scripture talk about don't marry people of other nations? Well, God's passion is for religious purity, not racial purity. Not only is God not against marriage from different ethnicities, he is against those who are. In fact, you remember the story in the book of Numbers. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. By the way, that means a black woman. Cush was Ethiopian. Moses married a black woman. They were talking against him for doing it. The anger of the Lord burned against him. And do you remember what God did? He struck Miriam with leprosy. Why? So that she could know what it felt like to be excluded on the basis of your external appearance. She was sent outside the camp because of her skin. There are interracial marriages in the genealogy of Jesus, particularly Tamar and Ruth. Now today, interracial marriages are much more common. I would say, they think the last number I saw, about 15% of all marriages happening today are interracial. Now you know and I know any marriage is going to be a challenge. 
To marry someone of a different culture or ethnicity or heritage might bring some special challenges to the marriage. All I can say is that the church should be the safest, the most affirming, and the most supportive community these families could ever find. And so we're going to have to get very, very comfortable with interracial marriage. And that includes our teenagers, dating teenagers of other races. And if you're not comfortable with that, I think your attempts to build a multi-ethnic church are going to fail miserably. Second, we're going to have to get comfortable with diverse worship styles. And this is probably one of the messiest issues multi-ethnic churches have to navigate. We all treasure the music that shaped us in our formative years. Right? The songs that inspired you, formed you, theologically shaped you when you were growing in faith, that music will always be precious to you. And deep down, you'll believe that's the music they're singing right now around the throne where the Lamb sits. <laughs> but surely, we understand that our infinite God cannot be contained by any time or culture or genre of worship. Right? So you have in the Psalms, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples of equity and guide the nations of the earth. So God has always been honored by the worship expressions of all the ethnic groups of the world. And we read in Revelation, God is going to bring the redeemed and restored cultures of all the nations into the new Jerusalem. And so, there is no particular genre or style of worship that honors God more than any other. But the problem is, we all have the kinds of styles of worship that speak most to our hearts. So how do you make that work? And the truth is, it is hard. I have a friend named Derwin Gray. He's the pastor of a wonderful church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Derwin Gray is a black man. He's got a big, giant church. It's multicultural. In fact, 55% of his church is white. And he'll tell you one of the biggest things you can navigate is worship style. And uh, every single week, a white person or a brown person or a black person will come up to him and say, I didn't like the worship today. And his response is, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, we must understand a truly multi-ethnic church must also be a multicultural church. And here's what I mean by that. And again, 
Give me grace here if I don't say this well. But what I think a lot of us want, is nobody says, I'm against people of other races coming to my church. What we often mean by that is, I want people of color to come to my white church and learn how to worship white. Learn how to be white. Learn how to act white. I want people of culture to accommodate to white Christian culture. And then we'll have a multi-ethnic church. I um, understand why this is difficult. Because the reality is, as a church leader, you just can't be all over the place. You have to kind of find the lane you're going to be in. We don't say at my church, well, now, our first song is going to be rap. Then we're going to have a bluegrass song. And then we haven't done a Gregorian chant in a long time. <laughs> and, and so you, you, but what I have learned, you can kind of pick a lane that you're going to basically stay in. And inside that lane, there's room for lots of new ones. And so we can sing a song that we all know and love well. But we can do a chorus in Spanish. Or uh, we can allow those who lead our worship who are African American to be themselves when they lead. We, we sing a song you're probably familiar with called uh, No Longer Slaves. And we've sang that song for a long time. But Joe Varney, who's one of our African American uh, leaders, when he sings that song, it comes from a different place. And he, he, I don't want us to put it because I, I don't have good vocabulary for this. He puts a, a depth of soul into that song that no white song leader could ever begin to approximate. And so you, you're comfortable with that. We, we, we intentionally look at our, our list of our songs and ask ourselves, are we, are we, Allowing for a kind of diversity that says to the different people groups God is drawing to our church, we know you're here. The problem, again, is that it may mean we allow in our worship some kinds of music or prayer that don't speak most of my heart. Because it's not the kind of music or prayer that shaped me. And so, can we be the kind of selfless people who say, I may not personally be blessed by it as much as someone else, but I'm blessed knowing that they are. Yes, yes, Does that make amen, sense? Amen. I have a friend who's a professor of a Christian college, and um, he hates modern, contemporary Christian music. He really would sing Gregorian chants every week if he could. <laughs> but he goes to a church full of college students where they have rock and roll, loud Christian music. And he hates it. So I asked him, why do you go every week? And his answer was, I don't personally enjoy it, but I really enjoy seeing how much they do. You're going to have to have that kind of spirit if you want to have a multi-ethnic church. Listen to me. Bringing people who are all alike together is not unity. What the world needs is our witness that we're bound together by a kingdom agenda, not similar personal agendas. So, 
This one's messy. It is really, really messy. Because there's more selfishness in our church than we want to admit. And it's so stunning how many people feel like I have a right at the church I attend to only have the kind of worship I like. And you can't have a colorful church that way. So you're going to have to get comfortable with interracial marriage, with diverse worship styles, and then with diversity in leadership. A multi-ethnic church isn't just evident by who comes, but by who leads. Do you notice how Luke intentionally pointed out the diversity in the leadership of the church in Antioch? You know, one of the things in my growth as a preacher, I recognize the first many years of my Preaching, almost all of the people I read and studied in theology were white men. That in my own leadership, I needed to hear the voices of people who weren't like me, and it's been such a blessing. I'm thankful that we have more people of color on our ministry staff. They give me insights into so many things that I need to hear. Uh, we recently put in some new elders, and seven of our new elders were men of color, and they are going to bring to the conversations we have with our leadership a perspective we have desperately needed. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the church that pursues God's multi-ethnic dream is a community where believers can sit under the authority of believers of other ethnicities with respect and honor and joy. And again, this was part of the stunning witness of the early church. That there might be a house church where one of the elders is a slave and a rich Roman citizen is going to sit under and submit to a slave. A Jewish believer in Jesus is going to submit to a Gentile as his spiritual mentor and shepherd. The world had never seen anything like this. And sadly, they don't see it enough today. Again, the multi-ethnic church is not easy. If you want easy, stay monoracial. But I think it's so much better because it's a, such a powerful picture of what the gospel can do. And so, the, fi the final thing I'm going to say I've learned about it, if you're going to be a multi-ethnic church, you're going to have to speak up when it's easier to shut up. Because when you start to invite people of other ethnicities into your church, they bring to them, they bring with them other concerns that only uh, that people of one ethnicity may not have. You know, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he set the bar pretty high. Jack Priest and that Levi could have said, I didn't put him there. It's not my fault. I'm not making it worse. 
Is that the bar? As a follower of Jesus, is the bar, well, I know the world is divided and the world is fractured and there's a lot of racism and a lot of sexism, but I'm not making it worse. I didn't do it. Is the bar, I didn't make it worse, or is the bar, what am I doing to make it better? We must seek ways to make it better. And seeking will always include speaking. You go to Acts 11, and Peter had to speak up when he was called on the carpet in Jerusalem for having a meal with Gentile believers. And Barnabas had to speak up when he saw the evidence of what God was doing in Antioch. And then in Galatians 2, Paul had to speak up and challenge Peter's hypocrisy when he wouldn't be with Gentile believers when people from Jerusalem were present. As Dr. King said so well, it's not the words of our enemies we remember, it's the silence of our friends. And speaking up is more than just getting like on social media. One of the things that has been the most challenging for me of a pastor of a church that's becoming more multi-ethnic is knowing how and when to speak up. I remember um, because we have a lot of a larger growing community of African Americans in our church. But after the murder of George Floyd, several, many people in our church reached out to our black members to express their sorrow, and they got this feedback. That's all right, Pastor Rick will talk about it Sunday. You just need to know that if you're a white preacher, if you start inviting people of color to your church, they are gonna expect you to talk about things that for years your white people never asked you to address. You're going to have to speak up when it would be easier just to shut up. And you're going to have to need a lot of wisdom. I know this is hard. I know every single week there is a, quote, issue I could talk about. And you have to be careful and you have to be wise. And by the way, speaking involves personal engagement. In other words, it involves more than words. It involves listening to people instead of getting defensive. It involves tithing and supporting your church and its efforts as it becomes more multi-ethnic. It involves serving in your community in ways you haven't served before. Reconciliation always involves sacrifice. The cross made that pretty clear. The, um, I told you yesterday, the little church where I was raised, I preached my first sermon, I mentioned racism, the elders barred me from ever preaching again. A few weeks later, our part-time youth minister that we paid $100 a week while he was in preaching school and barely making men's meet, went to the elders, challenged them, and said, you need to let him preach again or fire me because what you did was wrong. And one reason I'm standing here today is because he had the courage to speak up. Now, I don't believe Racism is going to go away until Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean we don't resist it until Jesus returns. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the ethnic groups. All of them. And again, I want to say, it's because of the mission that we can't sit on the sidelines about this. It's the mission that drives us. So I'll, I'll close with this quick story. So my wife and I, when we moved to Fort Worth many years ago, we, I've never met a pizza I didn't like. 
And so there was a pizza place across the street from the church that we ate at quite often. And we became good friends with the manager named Michael. And Michael was uh, an African-American. And uh, in many ways, everything about his past and his background was different than us. We just, we just became dear, dear friends. Uh, well, we're having lunch there one day. And my three-year-old son, Michael, uh, used to wander off and go into the game room and like he lived the whole little driving wheel and all that. Uh, we let him go for a couple of minutes. It got time to get up and leave. He couldn't find Michael. He wasn't in the game room. We went to the bathrooms. He wasn't in the bathroom. We went up, looked at all the tables. Michael was gone. Now, some of you have been there, and you know what? You, you start to panic. This, this restaurant is on a very busy street. Our son is gone. We are panicking. My wife is uh, just overwhelmed with grief. We're running up and down the parking lot. We're shouting. We're looking everywhere we can look. Michael is gone. And after about 10 of the longest and most awful minutes of my life, we turn the corner, and there is Michael Curry, our big black friend, who joined the search and found my son in the back of the restaurant playing in the dumpster. <laughs> and I look, and here is this giant, huge black man holding this little white boy walking toward me. Do you think I cared for a moment the ethnicity of the person that found my lost son? And God brought that memory to my mind, the Holy Spirit did, several years later. And I felt like I heard the Lord say this. I want my white children and my black children and my brown children to get it together and go find my lost children. And that's why this matters. The gospel is the hope of the world. It is strong enough to save, and it is strong enough to reconcile. And the church desperately needs, for the sake of the mission, to recover a passion for God's dream. A church that witnesses to the world the reality and the possibility of reconciliation. Because if the gospel could do this with this group of people, what could the gospel do with you and God? Thank you for listening. And thank you for staying with us.